developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. We have to keep going places where we're inviting people to come along with us. If they're asking their people to show up in a particular way, they have to be able to be that, right? You can't manifest a culture that is distinctly different from who you are as a person when you're the, the chief executive. So if you want a culture that is inclusive or that is innovative or that is safe for people to experiment so that you can continue to grow and, and beat the odds, you have to be that person. It's got to be the person. Hi, this is Mark Devine Show, and I'm your host, Mark Devine. Thanks so much for joining me today. Super stoked to have you here. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless. I speak in some of the world's most fearless and compassionate and courageous leaders. I talk to Stoic philosophers, top CEOs and entrepreneurs, and people bringing conscious leadership to the world, such as my guest today, Eric Kaufman. Eric combines an unrelenting commitment to results with an unyielding regard for spirit. He's the product of 40 years of Zen practice and he's seamlessly woven that into three decades of business leadership as a leader and as a coach or advisor to other leaders. He's an appointed thought leader at Harvard's Institute of Coaching, designed and taught coaching for professionals at San Diego State University, as the author of The Four Virtues of a Leader and, more recently, Leadership Breakdown. Eric has lived and worked on three continents, managed and led Fortune 100 firms, and he's a clinical hypnotherapist and master scuba diving instructor. In his early life, we'll talk about this, I hope, he lived off the grid in a mountain cabin he built by himself as a Zen practitioner. Eric's been married for 25 years and is the blessed father of two remarkable young women who know how to navigate the matrix. Before I get into the show, I wanted you to know that I'm opening up slots for our Unbeatable Coach certification and our Unbeatable Team for 2024. The Unbeatable Team is an amazing year of transformational training. It's where I direct my full attention and time in coaching and training. I don't do it anywhere else. It's here in the Unbeatable Team that I can give my full attention to help those deeply committed to transforming to become uncommon in a world that you know is rapidly collapsing into fear, moral relativism, and mediocrity. We meet virtually every month as a team, come together four times during the year for three days of powerful in-person training and practice, and I'm here to help you break through any barriers and to crush all of your goals for 2024. So if you're ready to go deep with me and willing to do the work, I can guarantee amazing strides will be made. Go to unbeatableteam.com and unbeatablecoaching.com to learn more about these unbeatable events. Now, back to the show. Really stoked to have you here. I'm stoked to be with you. Yeah, I was just sharing about my experience with Zen, and you were about to um, mention you, you started at 19. You beat me by two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started, I started at 19 because I had sort of... Um, I think as my father put it, I've fucked up my life already. <laughs> I'd come to America as an international student and I got, after my first semester, I got a note saying you're on probation and I sort of ignored it because I was having too much fun. And after the second semester, they said you're disenrolled. And I was like, oh crap, <laughs> I'm 19 years old. I'm disenrolled from university. I'm here as a student. That means I have to leave the country. I didn't want to leave America. So I had to do this real fast. 
discovery process of how does a human being get a grip on their life? And so I was in Southern California. It was the mid-80s. It was all these wonderful offerings. And, you know, it was a meditation and the Zen tradition. And then living in a spiritual community for what ended up being 13 years. That uh, Really? Yeah. It was a very discipline. It was like- Where was that in San Diego? What, what was we were on the border of Mexico down deep in Chula Vista. Okay. We had a, a you know, multi-acre property and a bunch of homes. There were 50 people living there. And uh, Amazing. We lived with our teacher and uh, up every morning at 5.30, meditate, do the you know whatever your chores are in the community, breakfast, and people would go to school or work or whatever and come back and meditations and practices in the evening and chores and stuff. Yeah. Went out for a long time. That's incredible. Right. When I, when I was studying Zen, it was primarily as an you know adjunct to my martial arts. We train. We do a, a long session on Thursday evenings, and then you know Mr. Nakamura said encourage us. He said you're not practicing unless you're doing a daily practice. And so I took I got my little zazen bench, uh, you know, from some mail order catalog. <laughs> so before the internet, and uh, I started practicing every morning. But I think the most profound shifts came. So we we would take these um, retreats to the Zen Mountain Monastery in Woodstock. The head monk was named Dido. And this guy was a trip. Like he was covered in tattoos. He's a former merchant marine who had, you know, transitioned into his monkhood. And incredibly interesting guy. And uh, so we would spend four days with the in residence monks twice a year. Did that for a number of years, and it was a profound experience. I love that. Just like you said, the where everything is a practice. Right. It's not just sitting practice, but eating is a practice, and doing the dishes is a practice, and gardening is a practice, and play in. Jumping in the river down the street was a practice. That really helped me understand, you know, what practice is or shugyo, right? This idea that life ultimately is a practice and, and, and ultimately all Zen is meant to be off the bench and in relationship and in an everyday experience. I mean, that's beautiful. Said. Those, those retreats are called sishins, right? That means uh, an intensive in Japanese, sishins. And the sishins are however many days long, right? And it's exactly that. It's an intensive where you're... That's right. I put on meditation retreats twice a year in San Diego. I'm not playing them to be a Zen retreat, but it's in that's what I'm trained in, right? So it's, it's a Zen tradition. I'd love to come in on those, by the way. Oh, that'd be <laughs> awesome. I talk about it as having monk mode, right? The monk mode, like the Sashin, is where you go into and you become a renunciate. So what does a renunciate do? The renunciate is giving up the ordinary. Right, stepping off the treadmill. In order to have something different, right? you know? And so the Sashins are wrong. But your point is like, and to me, this is like the point of, of all these practices, right, is it's one thing to sit on a cushion or on a bench and sort of attain a state. It's another to be in a boardroom or in a negotiation with a vendor or in a conversation with your child or your, or your spouse, your husband, your wife, and be able to hold center, right? right, to stay in that place of consciousness, right? Because it's like all these little hooks and little pieces are tearing and pulling at our, in our center, and to hold that is the gift that we can bring to the world and to ourselves. No, I agree with that. And, and I think this is missed a lot with the way meditation is taught today. It's, it's taught either just for relaxation or health or almost as an escape, right? Right. And so you can have that kind of by, that spiritual bypass where you, you escape into the, the void and completely disengage from life. Like at, the term Advaita means not to. <laughs> so escaping in the void to think, oh, I'm in this, I am one with the universe, you're missing the not two part because you are also one with life. So it's important to be both and. So when I was 30, I decided I was going to give my life completely to the spiritual practice. I was going to leave the world. I was living in the community. 
I was working at the time at Corning as a, as a young marketing executive. It was so easy to kick ass in corporate when I had that level of insane discipline as my regular life. You know, going to work was like the easy part of the day. But, you know, I was 30. I decided none of this anymore. I'm going to go full time into the, the, the point about your not one, two. I ended up essentially taking full oaths of, you know, devotion and, and poverty. I gave away all my money. I shaved my head. I gave away all my possessions, liquidated my 401k, <laughs> you went all in. gave me all in. <laughs> Went to the mountains of New Mexico, spent three months and built a 625-square-foot cabin. And I then moved in there. There, were, there was a community, sister community of ours in the mountains. And so they would bring me food once a week, so I was cared for. And I went into what ended up being a year-long silent session, a silent retreat for a year. And what ended that year was exactly what you're talking about. Literally had this profound revelation that said something to the effect of, you're going the wrong way. And I was like, What? that your spiritual life will come more online with wife and children and service and community. And I remember thinking, I do not like this message. (laughs) (laughs) I had like signed off on everything. I was done. And here was the message saying, no. Yeah, that was was 20 something years ago, 20, it's 25 years ago that I came back. And these past 25 years have been 25 years of integration, right? How do I live with my wife, with my now 22 and 20 year old daughters with my business, with my clients, not in the mountains. The yogis call it the householder path and they said it's the hardest path. I assure you, they're, they're right. They're right. <laughs> you know, um, I was been, my wife and I have been listening to this great audio series from Sounds True by a guy named Bruce Tift. He's a Western trained psychotherapist, marriage family therapist, who's also trained in um, Vedanta, Buddhism, from Rinpoche Chugram. He's a very famous teacher. So he was able to kind of braid the Western path of striving to improve the conditions of one's life, to clear up trauma and shadow, you know, all of this kind of like young style grasping, needing to get somewhere that's not here. With the Eastern model of fruitional practice of everything is already here. As it is. Yeah. As it is. Anyway, so what I loved about One of the things he said is that in the Western world, especially maybe let's say America, but Western world in general, he's found that relationship is the most profound path for spiritual awakening because in relationship, everything comes out. If you want that relationship to work, then you've got to take a look at, you know, the emotional healing and the shadows and and those things that tend to be skipped over when someone just does the headspace type meditation, right? So seeking kind of non-dual, and even the psychedelic movement is victim of this because you can have these profound experiences, these kind of non-dual uh, mystical experiences, and completely bypass any of the emotional or relational work. And so then over time, that doesn't work so well, and the ego kind of co-ops that as a sense of dreadful specialness, right? And so we see a lot of that, even in, especially here in California, there's a lot of people feeling very special about their spiritual progress. It's been true that, I mean, even though I, I lived listen, 13 years with a teacher in a community, marriage, so I, you know, my wife and I are now 25 years married, our kids are 22 and 20. And it occurred to me after I sort of digested this message, right? Because it just it was like a download, you know, you must go do this. It occurred to me that it's the next level up from my spiritual school, you know, from the, from the community that I lived in, because there was still tolerance and variability, right? I could still hide, but in the way that I wanted to be married, in the way that I wanted to raise my kids, it was going to be, everything was going to be wide open. And that has been a profoundly maturing as a human and spiritually evolving experience. 
So when you had that epiphany that you needed to re-engage and be in the world, did you have clarity around kind of your mission or like what that would look like? Or did that come afterwards? The mission for me was I wanted to integrate spirituality and business. You know, that was the mission. So I had to sort of leave my secure location as it were, right? My biggest fear at the time, I was in my early 30s, was that I would go into the belly of the beast, right, of the world as we know it, and that the beast would digest me, right? I would just be digested into more fodder for the beast, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> totally. You know. <laughs> and so it's taken a real continuous spiritual practice. You know, I couldn't bring spirituality into business if I wasn't living spirituality in business. I can't hawk something that isn't, you know, sort of oozing out of my skin as my own beingness. And in a way, that has guaranteed my own spiritual practice, right? If I didn't want to get digested by the beast, and if I wanted to remain authentic in my expression, then I would have to continue to practice. Because by the way, the expression, I'm 56, right? The expression of the 56-year-old man is not the same as an expression of a 35-year-old man. With all due respect to my ancestor, my previous self, I'm not him. <laughs> you know? And so um, keeping it alive is kind of the trick. And that's what's cool to bring to other people, right? How do you stay in this? Authentic isn't a moment. Authentic is a state. It's a state, you know? And so that's the invitation. I too am a coach at, at one level, right? I'm an author like you and I'm a coach and I run a couple of businesses and a nonprofit. So we have a lot of similarities there. But the fact of being a coach, trainer, teacher, you know, the different manifestations of kind of this expression that you're talking about of authentically giving, bringing yourself through your mission to others to help them in some way. The deeper I've gotten into it, the more important my own practice has become. And so that I'm worthy of what I'm asking or of what my, you know, my mission is asking of me. And so for that reason, I, I prioritize every morning, you know, I don't, unless something really important, I don't take any appointments before 10 a.m. And I use that time practicing with my wife and myself. And we do variety of practices that bring us joy and peace, you know, our meditation and our contemplation and our readings and our yoga and then our workout together and our sauna and our cold plunge. Yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I feel pretty blessed. <laughs> Anyways, my point is practice is, is everything when it comes, ultimately, I think all executives and leaders will come to this realization. This is the piece that they're missing. We've pretty much mastered the young doing strategy tactics, hack, biohacking. You know, everyone's trying to find the latest hack or supplement or something that's going to improve them. And it's, they're looking like you are looking in the wrong direction. They're looking in the wrong direction. So turning the inner eyes inward, finding that inner guru and guide and being able to sit in silence and receive that spontaneous knowingness. That's the next phase of leadership development, in my view. That's exactly where I'm at. I'm at we're on the same page 100%. I think, you know, the point you made about your own practice. And at some point, I mean, we refer to it to practice for lack of a better word in English, but it's not your practice, it's your life. We're calling it practice, but it's the way you're living your life. And I think one of the most sort of elemental things, you know, for the two of us who are actually in the realm of coaching and working with people to bring about what's possible for them, we can take people where we've gone. So we have to keep going places where we're inviting people to come along with us. And then if, we, if I think of my CEO clients or executive clients in much the same way, if they're asking their people to show up in a particular way, they have to be able to be that, right? You can't manifest a culture that is distinctly different from who you are as a person when you're the, the chief executive. So if you want a culture 
that is inclusive or that is innovative or that is safe for people to experiment so that you can continue to grow and, and beat the odds, you have to be that person. You can't outsource it to HR. It's got to be the person. If you're like me, then sleep is a big deal for you. If you've been following this podcast, you know that I talk about sleep a lot and how important it is that we get great sleep along with great exercise and great nutrition. Well, that's why I love Cozy Earth. It's amazing how incredible bedding can really, really help you sleep well. Cozy Earth was named one of Oprah's favorite things in 2018. Their best-selling bamboo sheet set is temperature-regulating and incredibly soft. I love it. Reinvent your sanctuary with Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding collection. They've got pillows, sheets, and blankets. You can indulge in their ultimate luxury. The stuff is amazing. Sleep like a baby. You can make every night a five-star experience with Cozy's responsibly sourced, temperature-regulating bamboo viscose bedding. Cozy stands by the durability of their products with their remarkable 10-year warranty promising a decade of restful sleep. So check them out. They're providing an exclusive offer to our listeners today, up to 35% off site-wide when you use the code DIVINE. So again, go to CozyEarth.com for that 35% off site-wide. Use the code DIVINE at checkout. D-I-V-I-N-E. Hoo-yah, Cozy Earth. With the pace of change in the world these days, we've got to be learning all the time. We've got to develop our own personal master's program and the content we get, we want it to be from experts, not just from some chat bot. And we want it to be easy to consume. Now, that's why Masterclass is the best place to become your best self in 2024 and to create your own little master's program. Stop talking about improving. Get with Masterclass to actually get on board and to get moving. If you want to learn from my teammate Jocko Willink on how to be an incredible leader, well, they got a Masterclass for that. They've got over 180 world-class instructors. You can master negotiation with former FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss. You can think like a boss with Martha Stewart. Masterclass has you covered. You get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one -on -one classes with the world's best experts. Every membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. There's no risk. Trust me. And right now, you get an additional 15% off an annual membership. So go to masterclass.com forward slash divine to check it out. That's M-A-S-T-E-R-C-L-A-S-S dot -S com slash divine, D-I-V-I-N-E. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash divine. Again, masterclass.com forward slash divine. Hoo-yah, masterclass. Let's talk about humility. I think people often mistake humility also as like a tactic or as something they have to do. And, you know, to your point, it's actually just this essential nature, right? When one is tapping into their essential nature, it's just raw humility, right? The ego is completely set aside. And that I think that can only be found through this life practice that you and I are talking about, about just, you know, learning to not have to be right and this constant search for some perfect form or state to end the judgment even toward yourself. I think humility is probably like the master key for leadership. Like everything you just described earlier about showing up as safety to create safety, showing up as abundance to create abundance. It's kind of like the still pond metaphor. It all flows from the still pond. The still pond is humility. Sure. I, I love that you go there. And, I, and you may know, I mean, it's part of my piece in my new book, right? The Leadership Breakdown. I talk about humility as one of the key pieces in there. And 
just linguistically, there's some really interesting clues about what humility is, right? So humility comes from the root humus, right? Which is the same root that the word human comes from, which is the, the actual, the humus, which is that, that dark earth, right? You talk about humus is the dark earth. Humility is to be grounded, to be of the earth, and to be fundamentally human. You know, fundamentally, humility, humus, human, earth, it is fundamental. What it means to be humble or to have humility is basically to say, I'm not better than anyone else, nor worse than anyone else, right? I am eyeball to eyeball, shoulder to shoulder, level on the level with every other human being. When I was younger, my teacher would talk to me about my false humility, which I think is something you're describing, right? False humility is, oh, shucks, you know, no, I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with that. Or, you know, that thing, no, I didn't take anything. That's false humility. The real capacity for humility comes from, to your point, the sense of confidence that transcends my accomplishment. It's a confidence that comes when the, what I call ego myopia. So that's my term for the, the real challenge, ego myopia, the sort of not being able to see and manage our ego. When we can correct the ego myopia and recognize our basic ordinariness, right? Humus, earth, human, ordinary. Then we can begin to really allow this special sort of manifestation of the life force that is flowing through us as this unique being at this time come forward without a whole bunch of distortions. So we can be humble and incredibly talented and, and powerful and charming. There's no limit on what you can be when you're being humble. It just fundamentally means that I am grounded in my sense of ordinariness. I'm not better than anyone or worse than anyone. And if we can bring that into a room, then what the leader does is you're not just holding space, but you're shaping space. You're shaping a space where other people can come into their greatness. What the hell? You know, you do that, and now you have extraordinary performance from folks who are aware of how ordinary they are. That's the conundrum. Yeah, I've often looked at it like the, you know, consciousness is flowing through these body minds that are conditioned, right? And we, all that conditioning from birth and karmic, you know, and memories and experiences becomes a sense of identity. And of course, the basic Zen practice is to investigate that and realize that there's nothing there. It's insubstantial, right, is the terminology. So, so then you're like, okay, if that's not me, if I am not those memories and I am not, you know, the basic I am, I am practice, if I am not that, then who am I? You get into Ramana Maharshi's and, and that the Jhana Yoga path and it's like, oh, well, I am consciousness. But it's also not unrealistic to say, I also have this body which had these experiences in this karmic energy, but just don't place my center of gravity in that. Be playful with it. See that as the character in the play that is in this drama of this world that you get to create. And a big part of that creation is to clean up the miscreations when, you know, for the bulk of your life or big chunk of your life that you did identify as that ego mark and you ended up dropping a shit ton of grenades and blowing stuff up. And I don't mean on the battlefield, I mean in life. You know what I mean? I had a considerable amount of cleaning up to do. Yeah, all the maimed and injured people around. Oh, totally. I mean, it's, it's devastating the damage we can do with, when you're living just purely from ego. Anyway, I went off a little tangent there, but tell me more about the leadership breakdown. That's an interesting title. And is it, are you talking about breaking down the ego and, and getting through to the other side to where you can show up, like what we're talking about? So it's intended as a double entendre, right? So it's the leadership breakdown. You're watching these breakdowns, right, on a, on a personal level, right? Somebody beset by imposter syndrome. And so they're kind of having to work extra hard and burn themselves out to prove something. So we just break down. Or there's a conflict between two executives, you know, the CFO and COO are not getting along and their teams are following suit. And this 
detaching from one another. So there's breakdown or at the organizational level. So that's one. The other is you can break down so you can break through. And to me, at the core of that, and this is what the book and what my work and what my effort sort of matured into over these couple of decades, right, is what I've come to call ego myopia, the inability to see and manage the ego. And very much of the point you just made, which is that it wasn't a tangent at all, I think it's so central to this conversation, is that when the ego myopia is corrected, so I don't actually have any conversation, Mark, about destroying the ego, killing the ego, having no ego, because I don't know how to experience that. So I haven't experienced that. I've experienced an untold number of altered states, bliss states, one states, you know, somatic consciousness. And every time I come back as Eric. There's Eric. You know, there's Mark, right? <laughs> slightly shifted, slightly shifted, slightly shifted, less, less. But so for me, the conception has become, I think we have this ego structure that becomes more what I call more porous and more spacious, right? So the ego identity becomes more porous, right? More things can move through it. They're not quite as fixed and more spacious. I can contain more possibilities. And when we can be in the world with this more porous and spacious sense of self, then we're in that Zen practice on a daily basis, right? Where things move through rather than become solidified. And Leadership Breakdown was an invitation for leaders to understand how to practically grasp some of that, right? How, what is the ego? What does it get in the way? And then I have these three constructs that if you integrate them, sort of awaken and integrate these three elements, that's the sort of the journey towards a healthy ego. Now, the way you're describing in the Eastern traditions, like Zen, talk about this opening, it's both a heart opening and a mind opening. Ultimately, like we use in our training, the term Kokoro, which means heart, mind, heart and mind merged into your actions. So jhana, bhakti, and karma, you know, the descriptions of the experience on a meditative path, right? So more openness, more inclusiveness, moving beyond ego and even into this more spacious inclusiveness of all, right? And that lines up with the Western stage model in development psychology, right? So there's a real kind of, almost like where the Western model ends, the Eastern model kind of picks up, talks more about the transpersonal, whereas the Western model is talking about the personal adult development. And this has even been taken as you're aware into leadership development by the likes of Bill Torbert and some of the other, you know, vertical theorists, you know, vertical developments, which is one of the things that we're working with, with our company and Beatable. So anyways, like the experience of the, the, post-conventional stages of self-awareness, self-transcendence, and then getting into the unitive, right? So these are all Western terms that are talking about the same thing, right? As an individual grows up through these successive stages of adult development, then they become more inclusive. They transcend the former version of themselves, like you said, the earlier version of Eric, and, and you know, I'm on version probably like 4.0 myself. Or maybe depending on how I want to slice it, right? I'm sure it's more than that. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. And so then you just become, the ego gets softer, like you said. It, I love that idea of porous. It gets, it, you just get less identified with it. You start, you know, for me, I'll speak from my personal experience. I do see it as there's a bunch of memories and experiences, but there was this essential beingness that I can identify threaded throughout my life. I can see it in myself at, at four years old, standing in the garden of my, my mom's friend's house, just standing there, just like watching the butterflies. And of course, that age, like the mind is still kind of forming, but I, that essential nature that I can experience right now with that memory was the same as I experienced right now as a 60-year-old Mark. And that's because over time, I've been able to kind of like diffuse my attachment to that ego as the center of my being and to allow the center of my being to be this life flowing consciousness through me, right? And so 
I love how the Western and the Eastern kind of marry up there, right, with that stage development into the in consciousness studies. And, you know, we didn't practice this in advance, but your language and my language has a lot of similarity because I described a movement, you know, along that vertical development, right? So, and a lot of people would be happy to arrive at like self-authorship. For many folks, that would be a meaningful accomplishment, right? Self-authorship. I'm no longer in kind of victim mindset. I'm now self-authorship. Right. That's only like halfway, right? Along the journey. And the way I conceive of it often is sort of moving from being self-centered to being life-centered. To your point, you know, if there's a circle and a dot, we're switching from being focused on the dot to being focused on a circle. You know, maybe we're from self-centered to life-centered. And that is when, you know, when the ego is more spacious and porous. You're still identifiably Mark. I'm still identifiably Eric. I'm also on version of probably, I don't know, 6, 8.0, something like that. There are various versions, and each one of these versions is stacked like babushkas right inside of me, informing, but not deciding anymore. And so... The identity doesn't go away. I've long abandoned that. I mean, the idea of having no identity is like, that's not the human aspiration. But to your point, we can actually, as a human being, as, as a husband to my wife, as a father to my kids, as a CEO of my business, I can be completely Eric, but not only Eric. That's the beauty. And that's where I think this conscious leadership invitation is. As, and here's sort of the piece of context for me, right? Is that the world we live in, or the experience of the world we live in, has shifted from once it was a simple world where you could see cause and effect, then it became a complicated world where a bunch of people could solve for it. Now it's a complex world. We're diving in and out of chaos, right? Complexity. And so in the complex world, you can't really lead or function like you did in the complicated world. It's not just cause and effect. It's agility and innovation, which we hear about all the time, not just because those are fancy consulting words, but because that's what's required to deal with complexity. And these states of being more porous and spacious, I mean, why do so many change efforts fail? It's because of people's egos. I don't want to do this this way. This is the way it's got to be. This is the way I prefer. This is convenient for me. And the ego is fundamentally wrapped around safety. So if we can be more porous and spacious, we can handle risk better. We can be more innovative and agile. And we can absolutely be more kind, connected, and collaborative. That's my pitch for uh, doing the work, you know? <laughs> Sleep, ah, glorious sleep. You know you need it, and a lot of it, and you know that life expectancy decreases if your sleep is poor. It's fundamental to our health span and lifespan, yet so many people struggle to build a reliable nighttime routine and get that quality sleep. That's where Momentous Sleep comes in. Momentous is a combination of three curated ingredients, magnesium L3 and 8, apigenin, and L-theanine. Together, they help you fall asleep faster, stay asleep longer, and wake up fully recharged. Each ingredient plays an, a crucial role. Magnesium L3 and 8 is a naturally occurring micronutrient which passes through the blood-brain barrier more easily than other forms of magnesium, delivering calm and quiet straight to the brain. Epigenin is a bioflavonoid that calms the neurons in your forebrain, which handles your complex cognitive tasks, so you can enter a more restful state. And L-theanine is a natural amino acid found in tea and that stimulates alpha brain waves associated with relaxation. These are proven ingredients... But I also want to tell you what it doesn't have. Momentous contains no banned substances, no toxic contaminants like heavy metals or pesticides, no fillers. The Informed Sport and NSF Certified for Sports Certifications are proof of that. You can rest easy knowing that what you see in the label is exactly what you get. Momentous really works. Trust me on that. I've tried other sleep aids and I always feel a little groggy in the morning or I get weird dreams. I don't get any of that with Momentous. Just a great night's sleep, feeling good, 
looking good when I wake up. They come in easy-to-use individual packs for maximum convenience. Grab your packet, and you're on a way, and they're great for travel. you got to get your sleep dialed in. Momentus develops their product in collaborations with leading experts such as Dr. Andrew Huberman and Andy Galpin, and they're used by 90% of NFL teams. They're in nearly 200 pro and college locker rooms. U.S. military, a lot of my SEAL compatriots also work with Momentus for research contracts, exploring high-performance nutrition and cognition. So check it out. No matter your goal or what you want to achieve this year, Momentus is on a relentless quest to help you get there. Check them out at livemomentous.com, L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com. Use the code DIVINE, D-I-V-I-N-E, to start your new year with 20% off sleep and all their best-in-class products. Again, livemomentous.com. Use the code DIVINE for 20% off. Just like with nutrition and fitness, your healthcare is unique and should be personalized. Whenever I visit a traditional doctor, I felt rushed and treated like any other patient with generic advice that honestly I took with a grain of salt because I was able to do my own research. I started the questioning that, and I looked into other options for a more personalized healthcare experience. I knew it was coming, especially with AI and all the stuff that are happening in the world, and now it's here, Wild Health. So I'm super stoked that Wild Health is a sponsor of this show. It was founded by two emergency room physicians, and they take a proactive and preventative approach to healthcare. They call it precision medicine. What they do is they use your genetics, your biometrics, and lifestyle data to help you determine what your body needs as far as nutrition, exercise, sleep, supplementation, and dietary needs. So you can function at your best now and over the long term. They've got some great stats too. LDLP measures cardiovascular disease risk above and beyond the risk of high cholesterol. Patients tested with a high LDLP, 67% showed improvement with wild health, decreasing their risk of mortality from suffering from a cardiovascular event. That's impressive. And that's the kind of data and support you're going to get from wild health. Whether you've got a specific health goal like weight loss or improving your body comp or improving your energy or just overall longevity, they will tailor a plan with lifestyle-first interventions. No pills and prescriptions. In the simplest sense, they want to help you live better and longer. Wild Health pairs each person with a care team, which consists of a board-certified precision medicine physician and an accredited health coach. You can message them anytime through the convenient app. Wild Health is fully virtual via telemedicine and is available everywhere in the United States. They're generously extending, show listeners, that's you, 20% off the cost of membership. Use the code UNBEATABLE. Head over to wildhealth.com unbeatable and use that code UNBEATABLE at checkout. Make this commitment to yourself. Start taking control of your health today. Again, wildhealth.com, W-I-L-D-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash unbeatable. Ken Wilber uses the term transcend and include. So you don't give up when, when you evolve or, or transcend or have one of those moments where suddenly like everything's different, but you're not sure why. It's not that you've ditched those prior identities, but you've transcended and included the positive aspects. And ideally, you're also doing the emotional work so that you can eradicate any of the shadow or negative aspects of those former versions of yourself to avoid the spiritual bypassing. Yeah. Ken said, like he added something to his wake up, grow up, show up terminology. It's like after waking up, now, now we got to work on the growing up and that's the stage development. And then you would show up as a fully integrated human being. And then he said, no, it's actually opening up. This is what we added. And I think they're using, you open up. Because you can wake up and all be in your head, but you have to open up the heart and open up to your intuition and that inner. But then there's also cleaning up. So just a few years ago, he started talking about cleaning up. So yeah, it's not enough to just do the mental work and the spiritual development work. You also have to do the emotional work in order to be whole. 
so you don't drag those kettlebells of regret and, and uh, judgment along, lack of forgiveness. And it took me years to sort of uh, recognize that when I had spent all this time in my training and then I'd spend this you know, time in the mountain in the cabin and then I had this message, you know, get out, you know, go do your thing. I didn't realize until I was probably in my 40s that I was spiritually so tuned in, but I was kind of an emotional moron. And that my inner wisdom and my inner compass was orienting me towards growing up. Right. And um, it, it is. It <laughs> right. is. And, and, but if I, if I may, there was something you said about sort of eradicating the shadow or something to that effect. I think you said my experience is really more about integrating than eradicating. I have not been successful at sort of like excising something, cutting it out, ditching it. I've been successful at being able to sort of come to be reintegrated, right? Because the shadow element of those, of those aspects of us that are, you know, shunned, pushed away, unacceptable for whatever reasons. And this is like, right? The high state of the Zen practice, right? It's the all one. Yata buta, as it is, right? All is included. And so this capacity to integrate those shadow pieces and then, you know, be gentle with self. I love that too. And I, but I do think that there is a practice that can eradicate ultimately, and that is forgiveness. And so forgiveness is, you know, just like the light dispels darkness, right? Shadow, the reason it's called shadow is because it's suppressed or negative energy that, you know, that the undeveloped child doesn't have the capacity to deal with. So it creates these neurotic patterns that make it safe that then as an adult, you're still, those patterns are still playing out. So yes, it's important. I agree with 100%, Eric. It's important to be kind to yourself and to begin to integrate those. But through awareness, by bringing awareness to them through therapeutic processes and forgiveness, it's like turning the light on and dispelling that darkness because it's all energy, right? We are just energetic systems. And so ultimately, my experience is that the trauma has been radically released and there's this sense of just absolute lightness when it's gone. So I think the forgiveness practice is a really powerful way to, when done with real earnestness, it can get rid of some of that. Well, it ties back to the humility too, right? Because forgiveness requires a sense of, you know, being very accepting, you know, not of the whatever was done to you, but of yourself of the conditions. I mean, there is a tall order spiritual practice to earnestly forgive. It's easy to say, oh, no, no, no big deal. I forgive you. But it's a different thing to let that charge evaporate. I found the Course in Miracles to be very helpful in that regard for that one practice. It's all about forgiveness. We have a few more minutes, but the Four Virtues of a Leader, is that your most more recent book? Yeah, The Four Virtues of a Leader was, was published by Sounds True, actually, in 2017. Or, yeah, 2017. And then, and then Leadership Breakdown came out earlier this year in 2023. What I'm keen of, and this could be a whole other conversation, not in a few minutes that's left, in, but, but essentially, I've boiled down kind of the path of this correcting egomyopia. So the egomyopia, as I have come to see it and study it and teach it, you know, is based on these three needs that we have, the need to be right, the need to be liked, and the need to have might. You know, and our ego is kind of wrapped up around these three needs, right? Assuming safety is a given, it's like, I need to be right, and all the things that come with that. I need to be liked, and all the things that are, you know, come with that. And I need to have might. I want to have some control. So there's a mature, you talk about vertical development, right? So corollary to that, as it were, or the elements that we can switch on, I refer to as wisdom, love, and power. That's like Satchit Ananda, by the way. Satchit Ananda, right? So it, it, it's not coincidence that there's three of them and there's a lot of, there's a lot of correlates and traditions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're seen right yeah. through my ploy, but yes, there, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's yoga. <laughs> You've done it. Good job. Okay, if you're going to call it right out like that in public, go ahead. I was going to be real slick about it and kind of put it on the back door, you know, but okay. 
But yes, it's it's wisdom, love, and power, right? Wisdom, uh, sort of the capacity to see and understand and dive below the surface and beyond the obvious. Love, this capacity to give without expectation, right? And power, the ability to show up unapologetically. And when we can activate and integrate wisdom, love, and power, we're now living a conscious life. And as, as a leader, it's a conscious leadership experience. That's what my work is now. Right. So when you work with executives as a coach or with teams, how do you help them unlock wisdom, love, and power? It starts with some cognitive foundations, right? Just so the context of what wisdom is, what isn't, what it isn't. I, you know, we have assessments now that can show kind of where you are in those dimensions. I have, you know, like, for example, we look at what blocks wisdom, right? So there's these things that I call the barriers to wisdom. So like anger and prejudice and denial, you know, those are things that are not wisdom oriented. You can see they're contracting, 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 anger, I'm, you know, I'm fierce and I'm very myopic, denial, you know, so how do you cultivate self-awareness and curiosity and mindfulness, right? Those are ways to help activate wisdom or or power, you know, and power. Oh my God, Mark, and you probably know this better than many, but we are so twisted around the axle and power in <laughs> sure. our world. It is it is a pandemic of its own. The level of disempowerment, the desire for power, the fear of power, we are so wrapped around the axle. But I, I would say that- Misuse of power. Misuse of power is rampant. But on a personal sort of this innate power, for example, anxiousness leaks power. People-pleasing leaks power. Blaming leaks power in buckets of buckets. And then we have ways of helping them integrate that into their personal practice and into their team practice and into their organizational practice so that there can be wisdom, love, and power and all the benefits that come of it. How do you find people to work with you? Like we, we do similar work and it seems like, I mean, generally with us, I have an individual who comes, you know, who's a leader of an organization or a team and they work with us for a year or two and they're like, experience the transformation and they're like, I got to bring this back to my team. And whenever we've tried to actually sell this to an organization, it's like, <laughs> finding it a little difficult. Well, that's a bummer. <laughs> I, don't, I hate when you confirm my reality. <laughs> I was hoping you'd have a secret sauce for me. <laughs> I was hoping you, I'm hoping you'd have the answer, Mark. Yeah, the, the, um, yeah, I just had this conversation with somebody yesterday on my team and they were like, well, you know, do we sort of blast it out to everyone or do people have to self-select? I think there is a certain self-selection process, but you know, the podcast, the book, sort of putting the message out there. For two decades, I was much more concerned with just kind of doing the work. It's much more recent that I actually want to, you know, maybe because I'm older, maybe because I'm an empty nester, and, you know, maybe because it's a life change and, and I've, I've arrived at a certain point, but the sort of the call to teach and engage with more people has switched on in a, in a way that I, I haven't felt it in a long time. And so doing what what's on me and what's on you to sort of invite folks into the conversation. And then if I'm coaching a CEO, to your point, before long, they're like, okay. You know, the realization for them is that I, even as I'm the CEO, people have a misconception about CEO's power, by the way, because to be the CEO puts you in the role of dependent like never before, because anything that you're going to accomplish for which you're accountable and about which you're excited has to be with and through other people. So the level of dependence becomes remarkable, even though people think, oh, CEO has all the power. Yes, and... And so they recognize that they want to bring this to the team so that they can create a better vessel to bring forward what they're, you know, conceiving and responsible for. So that's, you know, it's a fun way to do it. I don't know about mass market, though, if, if that's your question. 
I have a professor who's also in Amazon, uh, in Amazon security, he runs all their physical security. And he's like, hey, we got to bring you guys in to do some training with us, with my team. So we put together our standard proposal and his team is too risk averse. Like, oh, we're not going to go work out in front of each other. <laughs> I was like, are you serious? That's not, that's really sad. You know what I mean? That they wouldn't put themselves out there like that. And these people are running, you know, part of one of the largest organizations in the world. On the other hand, like we're, we've got a proposal into Shell. Now, Shell Oil is a very different type of company than Amazon. They're very risk aware, you know, kind of like the SEAL teams, you know, they're working on top of, you know, these mega, five megaton bombs every day in the right. oil fields. You know, so <laughs> right. so they, they're really all over it. So, but I agree with this. Not, I don't think, not yet, but within five to 10 years, I think the type of work that you and I are doing will become normalized, more common. And of course, McKinsey and Accenture will co-opt it and be doing most of the work. <laughs> I'll tell you why I think you're spot on is because the conditions on the ground, not only have they become more complex, but we are living in a form of kind of social reality that is materially different, which is to say the shapers of human society are executives of corporations. It's not the government so much. It's not the church. I mean, look at Zuckerberg and Ma, you know, as, as examples, right? And so the, the mantle of responsibility is on the shoulders of executives. And while some of them don't want it, it is simply a fact. And so the MBA is going to be insufficient for the level of social, physical, moral responsibility. And so kicking up the consciousness is requisite. That's why I think it's inevitable. I totally agree. The corporations have become the dominant institutions. You know, you see the devastation environmentally that unconscious leadership has created. And so it's on corporations to clean that mess up, right? It's not going to happen by any kind of green movement or the UN or Greta Thunberg. It's going to be through evolution of consciousness and these organizations and new organizations cleaning up and, and evolving. My kind of parting shot when I close out my uh, podcast is we need to be the change we want to see in the world, but let's do it at scale because we can do that now with technology. Thanks to Zuckerberg and Musk right? and podcasts like this. Anyways, man, this has been a great conversation, Eric. Um, what's next for you? Like, are you working on another book? Or are you going to focus on growing your business? No, I'm going to pause on the book for a moment. I mean, this is, you know, uh, it's the third book. I mean, I have a friend of mine who just published his 45th book. I'm like, oh my God, Doug, you're an angel or God or something. You know, <laughs> I'm on my third. But um, I describe the work as a place where an unrelenting commitment to results combines with an unyielding regard for spirit. That's what I'm about. That's what my life has been about. That's what I want the conversations, the actions, and the results to be. Oh, yeah, to that. And where can uh, listeners learn more about your work and connect with you? Sagatica.com, S-A-G-A-T-I-C-A, Sagatica. This comes from the Latin word sagacitas, well, like wisdom, sagacious, or sage. So, like sagacious. Yeah, so yeah, Sagatica.com nice. is my website. Uh, Eric Hoffman on LinkedIn would be the two great places. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Eric, uh, thank you for your work and for bringing this to the world. I think it's really important and timely and I appreciate your time today. It's been an awesome conversation. Really enjoyed it. Same there, Mark. I really appreciate who you are and what you're being to the world. Appreciate that. Yeah. What a great conversation with Eric Kaufman. Really enjoyed discussing uh, matters of the spirit and how to bring conscious leadership into the world. It's up to the corporate leaders to be the change now that they want to see in the world and clean up some of the mess of the past. You can find the show notes at my website, markdevine.com. And the YouTube is up on my YouTube channel. You can reach out to me at Twitter, um, X, at Mark Devine, and on Instagram or Facebook, at Real Mark Devine. 
If you're not signed up for my newsletter, Divine Inspiration, consider subscribing at markdivine.com. I send it out every Tuesday morning, and it has show notes from this podcast. It has a blog that I've been working on for that week. It has a book that I'm reading and other really interesting things and positive things that come across my desk, including a weekly practice. And thanks so much for my team of Catherine Devine and Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell who bring this podcast and that newsletter to you every week. And uh, reviews and ratings are very helpful. So if you haven't done so, please consider doing it wherever you listen. It helps others find it, helps us stay at the top of the rankings. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for being the change you want to see in your world for maintaining a positive mindset and a courageous attitude because it all starts with you. Be the change. You are the creator of your world. So make it an awesome one. Till next time, this is Divine. Out. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.